0: Let me pray for us before I begin. Lord Jesus, um, I just thank you for this chance to be gathered together as a family in your house, and your presence, in the season of your coming. Lord, I am um, a little short on sleep and kind of sick. And I feel a little disjointed this morning with microphone problems and all kinds of craziness. And maybe there are others here this morning who similarly feel disjointed. Lord, you have all strength in yourself. You have girded strength on like a belt. And you are good and gentle and courageous. And you have come running across time and space for us and for this place. And you will not let go. And I pray that that spirit, that enthusiasm, that joy, that youthful energy and passion would descend on me and us this morning in this room and fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might know and taste and see that the Lord is good. And it is so good to be your people, and what you have done is so good, and we need you to come back and do more of it soon, and we are excited like children for Christmas. Pray that you'd be with us this morning, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, back when I worked for Alaska Airlines, we used to um, joke behind the ticket counter that we could tell where a person was headed just by looking at them. That uh, in those days, the, the ticket counter in Seattle was this long counter kind of facing these, this big glass wall and these doors where people would come in. And so you could stand there, especially in Christmas time, there were some slow days, and you look up and the, the automatic doors would open, and the guy walks through with the cowboy boots and the hat and the, uh, the bowline tie. And you look to the agent next to you and you say, <clears throat> It's the Dallas flight. Uh, or um, it was you know, plaid and jeans and big hiking boots, and so that's, that's one of the Alaska flights. Uh, or it was like sweatpants and a whole lot of makeup all at the same time, so that was a Los Angeles flight. <laughs> so one day, I'm working first class check-in. And you just, you just kind of get it. You, you do so many of these a day. It's just a routine. And the person walks up and you say, where are you headed, sir? The guy says Los Angeles because I already knew because he was fancy dressed and had on big sunglasses like he was trying to hide from somebody. Uh, real tall guy with kind of reddish hair. And uh, so I said, all right, what, what time is your flight leaving? And he handed me his ID. And, of course, it was a California driver's license. And asked him if he had any bags to check, and he didn't have any bags. So I got a whole picture of this guy now. He's from California. He's headed to Los Angeles. He's not checking a bag, which means that uh, he's important enough that it was worth it to fly up to Seattle for not long enough to need a bag. And um, he's in the first-class checkout line, and he's very comfortable. He's neither excited um, nor kind of confused. He's he's in the first-class checkout line like this is something he does every day. And so... I've got a whole picture for this guy. He's a Los Angeles big shot, hiding behind his sunglasses, headed back down to Los Angeles, checking in, in first class without a bag. I know who this guy is. So I had pretty much everything figured out. And then after I'd gotten all his paperwork together, I grabbed his ID and his boarding pass and handed it back to him. And at that moment, I gained an additional piece of information when, for the first time, I actually looked down at his ID and I said, there you go, Mr. O'Brien, Conan O'Brien. It's gate D3 just down this way. And uh, so it's entirely possible for us to interact with someone or something and think that we have the whole thing figured out and yet miss a pretty significant piece of information. Last night, uh, after Thanksgiving was over, in my house we set up the Christmas tree and the lights and the ornaments. And uh, my children have literally exploded with enthusiasm. Just laps around the house. <laughs> and uh, in here this morning, we have all these fancy decorations because it's the season of Advent. We're four and a half weeks away from Christmas. Um, what is this about? Do we know what Advent is about? Well, Advent, you know, it's... it's It's not about the presence, it's about Jesus, Jesus coming into the world. If you've been in the church for a while, you know that. But let's stop for a second and ask ourselves, what is good about that? What is the good news of Advent? What is the good news of Jesus coming into the world? I'm going to actually stop for just a second and give you a moment to think about that think through, how would you answer that question to someone else? What is the good news of Advent? Perhaps for some of you... um, The answer might have been the good news is that Jesus came into the world to die for our sins, that we might be forgiven. Uh, Or perhaps others of you um, settled on the the Emmanuel concept, God with us. Jesus came to be with us, God dwelling in our presence. And those are all right. Those are right. But there's something else that I think that we, we miss. Um, if we take a look at one of our many passages this morning from Luke chapter 1, this is the announcement of the angel to Mary. When the angel talks about the good news of Advent, he says this, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So, in this first announcement of the good news of the story of Advent. The angel says quite a few things, but focuses in on Jesus. He's the son of the Most High, and he has a throne, the throne of David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and he will have a kingdom, and it won't end. It's a lot of king and kingdom talk. And then a chapter later, when angels again come to the shepherds in the field, what do they say? Don't be afraid. Good news. This day in Bethlehem is born a Savior. Christ, the Lord. The Lord, which is a a divine term, a ruler term. Basically, here's what's happened. A savior king was just born. The king that we all need was just born. So in these two passages, as many as others, in many others, there's this theme of the good news of Advent. Part of it, yes, forgiveness of sins and God coming with us, but also Jesus coming as king ruling over a kingdom. So I want to take a look this morning at that aspect of the good news of Advent, the good news of the concept of the coming of the kingdom. I've got um, a selection of passages all over the Bible. One, because sometimes I can't just make up my mind. Uh, But two, rather than explaining a text, uh, this sermon is more what we call systematics. It's what does the Bible teach about? And... um, To find out what's so good, why Jesus is coming as king, what makes sense about the kingdom, what's exciting about this, uh, I want to step back and take a look at what does the Bible mean by kingdom. And specifically in Matthew 6, where Jesus teaches us how to pray. This is not the whole prayer, but he begins like this. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'd suggest in this little passage that Jesus makes a radical adjustment to our view of who God is, our view of what the earth is, and our view of what human beings are. We're going to take a look at those those three things, starting with God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. A lot has been said about how in the Old Testament the Jews did not call God Father. And so Jesus is making a little bit of an adjustment. It's a very personal connection. It's God is our Father. But in Jesus' day in the ancient Near Eastern world, some commentators have pointed out that the word Father spoken to a leader or a God or a king, the first thing that would have come to mind is kingship. That um, in the West, for very good reasons, we sort of emphasize the individual and individual relationships, uh, but in the ancient world especially, kingdoms, empires were thought of basically as an extended family. And there's countless references to ancient kings referring to themselves, like things like I'm your father, uh, I'm your daddy, I'm your husband, um, you're my children. And we kind of function together as a family. And so there's an element in this in which Jesus is saying, we're praying to our Father. We are a kingdom family. And God is our Father King. And as if that wasn't enough to call him Father, hallowed be your name. It's, it's familiar, comfortable language, but it's also reverent language. It's the bowing of the knee before God, our Father King. And the burning desire of Jesus' prayer is that his kingship would come down to the earth. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God's glory, his goodness, his beauty, his authority is obvious in heaven and perfectly recognized that everyone in heaven in his presence is just blown away by what a great and awesome and true and beautiful king and father and God this God is. There's no denying it. And everyone in heaven recognizes his goodness, his beauty, and therefore is in perfect submission to him and everyone does things the way that he wants them done all the time because what better thing could there be to do other than to recognize the beauty of this great fatherly king and to do exactly what he wants because it's always so great that that is what happens in heaven and Jesus' great desire is that that would happen here on the earth. Christopher Wright writes that um, the reign of Yahweh, the Old Testament God, the God, Um, when it comes, he's describing what this this space around God, his kingdom, if you will, looks like. And he says, when it comes, it means justice for the oppressed and the overthrow of the wicked. It brings true peace to the nations and abolition of war, and it would put an end to poverty and want and need. If you look through all the texts and laws... ...of the Old Testament, I would suggest... ...that's what they're all pointing towards... ...is that this is what God loves... ...truthfulness and honor... ...and, and not stealing... ...and reverence and uh, safety... ...and security and relationships. And it's what we see in Revelation... ...at the end. The kingdom reminds us... ...that God is reigning as king. And um, yes, he loves us... ...and he died for our sins... ...and that's actually what makes that so remarkable... If we understand his death and his love for us and his comfort as our father in the context of God being the reigning king of the beautiful kingdom, it makes that sacrifice that much more beautiful. Um, Richard Pratt, one of Todd's old seminary professors, um, was teaching me a lot about this at our RUF training about 10 years ago. And he puts it this way. I'm going to hide behind his language. He says, it adjusts our perception of God from the great sugar daddy who kind of exists to give us what we want and a happy, meaningful life to God as the great king ruling over heaven and earth. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth it is in heaven. So it adjusts our picture of who God is. It also adjusts our picture of what the earth is. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' burning desire is to see God's glory, his kingship manifested, not just anywhere, but right here in the city and county of Honolulu. And in first century Palestine where he lived and in every place on the earth. And likewise, when we look at the passage from Revelation, not only do we see an end of all suffering, we see an end of all suffering on the earth. The beginning of the Revelation passage here from Revelation 21, this is what we see at the end of the age. He carried John away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. What he's seeing is not what we might expect, all of us getting the heck out of Dodge and getting up to heaven where everything is beautiful. What he sees is heaven coming down to the earth. It's what Jesus is praying for. It's what he's working for. It's what he's longing for. And it's what he's promising is going to happen in the end. Not that we're going to throw away the earth, but that his kingdom will finally be established here on the earth, that Jerusalem, which represents the place where he dwells, and everything is perfectly recognized about him. It also represents us, by the way. We are the holy city, comes down and dwells and reigns on the earth. And so everything is finally done just as he would see fit on the earth. And all those things that Christopher Wright wrote about, the overthrow of the wicked, true peace among the nations, the abolition of war happens here. Um, keeping in mind the recent events in Paris. The question of what Islam is is a complicated one. Is it a violent religion? Yes. Is it a peaceful religion? Yes. Yes, it is. One of contemplation and inner war and struggle. It's not an either-or question of understanding what Islam is, but it, it is this a religion that has understanding of God, Allah, which is actually just the Arabic word for God, ruling over the earth, desiring to take ground. And In that sense, many of the, of the actions that are taking place in ISIS and the Middle East actually make perfect sense with the theology that they have, that God is the reigning king and we are here to establish his kingdom and take ground on the earth. As Richard Pratt puts it, that they understand, just like we do as Christians, that the earth is the playing field on which the gods show who's the boss. And so in that sense, yes, in in a spiritual sense, we are at war for the earth. Of course, our our tools are different from their tools. Our tools, the tools given to us by Jesus are not violence um, and bloodshed of others. The tools we're given actually are things like sacrifice and humility and suffering but either way the view of the kingdom is one that we are here praying and desiring for God's kingdom to come to the earth to take ground for for God to be shown as the true God here on the earth So the kingdom gives us a, a kingly perspective of God. It gives us a valued perspective of the earth as, as a good creation that we're not going to let go of. And finally, it changes our view of man. That How will the kingdom come? Well, God has ordained, shockingly, that his kingdom is going to come on the earth through human beings. That Jesus, as a human being, is here praying for it. He's desiring us to pray for it. And he actually says in the same chapter Matthew 6 that we are to seek the kingdom and its justice before all things, including food. That to be the representatives of that kingdom is what we are made for. In uh, Exodus 19, when God calls the Israelites to himself at Mount Sinai, and he's about to give them the Ten Commandments, He says to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That it's his desire that we would be the agents of his kingdom ruling on the earth, representing him and his kingdom values, things like love and sacrifice and devotion and faithfulness. That's our calling as human beings. Um, Craig Bartholomew likens this. He says, it's as if Michelangelo was working on a great sculpture like the David, and he's got it about 90% finished, and then he calls you up, and he says, hey, I'm going to go to another town and take a job over there. I would like you to finish the sculpture for me. And make sure that you do it in such a way that my glory and reputation are well represented before the world. It's a little bit overwhelming, but very generous. How awesome would you feel if Michelangelo entrusted you to a task like that? And as human beings, it's the great dignity that we have that God, the great king, said, here's my beautiful earth. I'm giving it to you to take care of on my behalf. Represent me well and establish the kingdom, my kingdom values on the earth. We've also started reading um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in our home recently uh, from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And if you're familiar with the story, it's um, these children go into another world, and there's brokenness and darkness there, but there's this great lion, Aslan, who's going to come save everything, but one of the children becomes a traitor, Edmund. And so Aslan sacrifices his own life so that Edmund could be restored to his status. Aslan is the the Christ figure, so it's a, it's a, a story drawing on the themes of Christianity, of God sacrificing himself. Here's my point. If you know the story, you know that the death of Aslan and the restoration of Edmund are a really important part of the book. But they're actually not the climax of the book. What is the climax of the book? Why does Aslan die for Edmund? To restore him to his status as a king so that Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy can rule over the earth, Narnia, as kings and queens for a thousand years on four thrones in their great castle of Paravel, And that's how the book ends. That the glorious point is that they've been redeemed from their sins so that they, as Aslan's representatives, lead Narnia in beautiful ways. That They're just these little children, and yet all the animals are so in awe of them and love them and a delight to have them as kings and queens. You see how thoroughly that C.S. Lewis saw this vision of the kingdom. It's almost too literal, if you even think about it, that that's our calling as kings and queens to reign on the earth with all the animals delighted to have us, sons and daughters, Adam and Eve, as our kings ruling on the earth. So you've seen uh, God, the earth, and man. Let's go back and take a look at our passage from Genesis 1 and see if you don't see all three of these themes as God is the great king, the earth as his ideal dwelling place, and man as his representative in this passage. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, kingly language, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. All through the creation, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then here at the end, now that human beings, man and woman, Adam and Eve, are set in their place to rule over his beautiful creation on the earth, he says, mm, so good, so good, very good. Because his will is being done on the earth with man in their place and his glory being represented. And take a look at the passage from <laughs> Revelation. See if this doesn't look like an echo of Genesis 1. At the end of the story, I'm going to read the middle paragraph there from Revelation 22. The angel showed me, this is what it's like after the Jerusalem comes down to the earth. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of sun or lamp for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God is on his throne, and, but the Lamb is on his throne. But all the nations are there, and they've been healed. But they also are reigning over the earth. Because God's kingdom has come down to the earth. And as a result, everything happens well all the time. You see all the themes? So that's when Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom, desiring the coming of the kingdom. That's what he's talking about, that we have a taste for that, a taste for the joy that happens at the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a taste for what happens in Revelation. We are desiring to return to Eden, except have it even be better, to have his reign recognized on the earth and to have ourselves restored in dignity, beautiful, before him, reigning over the world. So what is the problem? The problem, obviously, is the fall. That we don't get two chapters into the story before the fall happens. And Satan, interested to mess with God's beautiful creation as much as he can, goes after the most beautiful part of the whole thing. His representatives on the earth. You and me. If Satan could just get them to to reject God's beautiful authority, he could mess up the whole thing, which is what happens. And in that moment in the fall, the Garden of Eden, which previously was this perfect ideal place for God's reign to be realized and us to walk in peace with him and everything to go well, becomes instead an arena of defiant rebellion against the king. And so since then, all of creation cries out for redemption from us. Because God's gracious, beautiful representatives on the earth have become selfish, mean, bitter, defiant, poisonous representatives. Isaiah 9, one of the prophecies that a a son will be born, the prophecy of Jesus' coming, begins talking about a people walking in darkness. A light has dawned on those walking in darkness. We are in darkness. We are in darkness. That is the problem, that we have or should have this great burning desire for the great king, to have his glory manifested for God's will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven, and it's not happening, and we are the problem. It's dark here. And I don't know how the colors of Christmas became red and green. I'm not opposed to them. My house is mostly red and green now. But in the church, dating back to the first couple centuries, our colors for Advent have always been dark blue or purple because purple is the color of morning, and dark blue is the color of night. And Advent is a time to remember that we are singing in the darkness, waiting for the light. It is the darkness of dawn before the sun arises. And that's what makes the songs of Advent so meaningful. Here we are in a dark, broken world. I'm broken. You're broken. There's war and terrorism and poverty and nothing is going well. And joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant because it is not always going to be this way. And that is why Jesus had to come, to begin the kingdom, to do for us what we ought to have done. That Jesus enters the earth and is born as a king on the throne of David. And he does a number of things as king. He sacrifices himself and dies for our sins so that we could be forgiven for the crummy job we did of representing God. But he also leads us, as David led Israel, in representing God to the world. He's born into the world as the king that we we needed. God has entered into both sides of the equation. Make sense? On one side, there's God reigning in glory In heaven, on the other side of the equation is us who are supposed to represent him. And he's entered into that side of the equation as well. And as a human being, on our behalf, represented God beautifully to the world. Everything that Jesus ever did was awesome. So beautiful, so right, that I think if you spent 10 minutes with Jesus and had even a little bit of a soft heart, you would cry for what a beautiful, awesome man this was. This is what we were supposed to be. He's born into the line of the great kings. We find in our Luke passage. He's the savior king that's been born. He enters into the battle. Not... From 10 miles back, fighting at a computer screen, he's in the middle of the battle, leading his people, establishing the kingdom with values like sacrifice and faithfulness and trust and hope. Uh, it's a little bit like the story, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. You know, the um, think of the Mickey Mouse version. There's a sorcerer, and he has this apprentice who's Mickey Mouse, who's... He's teaching to do various things, and the sorcerer goes off, and his apprentice tries to kind of figure this out on his own and really messes it up. And so the sorcerer has to come back in and say, give me that wand for a second. Let me take over here. And sets everything to right. Except unlike the story of the sorcerer's apprentice, not only does he kind of take control of the reins and set everything back right, then he turns to the apprentice and he says, why don't you help me? Why don't you let me put things to right, and then you come with me, and you help me with this. He accomplishes our role. He restores us to our role. And together, he and we prepare for God to reign on the earth. Part of the importance of the incarnation is, yes, Jesus comes, and he's one of us, and he dies for our sins. But also, he's one of us, and our calling as human beings, He, he was a man with a physical body. And he still has a physical body. I I don't know how that works. I don't know where it is, but the scripture is very clear that he has become man and he's not ceased to be man and he's ascended into the heavens and someday he's coming back both then and now with the physical presence. He is one of us. What we're looking for is what's summed up quite succinctly in Revelation 11. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. That Jesus came and began his work, and he's going to come back again and establish his kingdom on the earth, and reign as Christ. So what do we do with this? This broader picture of God restoring the whole world, not letting anything go, creation itself, which is very good, should give us hope, That everything sad will come untrue should give us freedom from fear. Validation, there's a reason why it feels so wrong. Challenge, we're part of the problem. Courage, our king is leading us. I think for us, maybe this might be a helpful application to tell this story. We live in a world longing for meaning. And everyone kind of wants to know that we're all going to be okay and all paths are okay paths. And part of that's true. But why not tell them the whole story? The Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia story. That there's a great king who's going to come back and he's going to reign on the earth and restore everything the way that it should be. I'm going to read a little section from a a tract. Find my page. Here we go. The Bible assures us there are new heavens and a new earth that are that we are awaiting, according to God's promise, in this righteousness to dwell. Second Peter. Sometimes when the Bible speaks of the earth, it means the people who live on the earth. So the righteous new earth is a society of people who receive God's approval. Jesus promised that in the coming new world, those approved of by God would receive the gift of everlasting life. Now consider from the Bible the blessedness that will be enjoyed by those who qualify for that wonderful gift from God in the coming earthly paradise. I'm going to truncate here a little bit, but it says, Wickedness, warfare, crime, and violence will be gone. God's worshipers will live in security. Food shortages will not exist. It says, The whole earth will become a paradise. Lovely new homes and gardens will occupy land that had once been ruined by sinful humans, Isaiah 65, Revelation 11. As time passes, parts of the earth already subdued will expand under the whole globe, until the whole globe is as beautiful and productive as the Garden of Eden, and God will never fail to open his hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalm 145. What a marvelous future awaits those who choose to learn about our grand creator, God, and to serve him. It was to the coming paradise on earth that Jesus pointed when he promised the evildoer who died alongside him, you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23. It is vital that we learn more about Jesus Christ through whom all these blessings will be made possible. Does that sound like what we've been talking about? Does anybody know what this is? What does the Bible really teach? This is the Jehovah's Witness track. And they're right. They're right to talk about the glory of the coming kingdom and the paradise coming on earth. Now, they're wrong in the sense that they don't think that Jesus is God, which means that they don't really believe in forgiveness of sins or anything that Jesus promises to do for us to help us participate in this kingdom, which therefore makes it less of a beautiful dream and more of a legalistic, crushing, harmful, controlling cult. But they're right to talk about paradise and the earth. And I kind of wonder if the reason why Jehovah's Witnesses are so popular is because they're telling this story and we aren't. Why don't we talk that way about the glory of the coming kingdom? Our place um, in the kingdom in Advent is remembering that our king has come and he's going to come back again. Um, To keep with the illustration of the Chronicles of Narnia, if you remember when the children are gathered at the beginning of the book in the beaver's house. And it's a dangerous time. Because if you go out about in the woods, you never know whose side the trees are on and you might be reported to the wicked queen or turned into stone. And yet, here we are, gathered in the darkness in the beaver's hut talking about how Aslan is on the move. He's coming back, our Savior King, and when he does, he's going to take control, and he's going to reign, and he's going to restore the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to their place on the throne. Let's look forward to that story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this good news. You have a better vision than I would have dreamt or thought. You have more hope for me for each one of us than I have wanted for myself. And you're more glorious than I really could have hoped for. I pray that you would be at work among me, among us to help us understand this reality more fully, to see You as our father, our husband, our friend, and our king. And Lord, along with John, we do pray, just like you came before, that you would come again, that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray.